for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In It Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And my name is Marshall. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah? Good, yeah. You went and got yourself punched in the face a little bit? I did. <laughs> come in ready to talk about church history? Yeah, instead of a lunch break, I just hit up the, the Muay Thai gym to get a couple rounds of training in, and it was it was good. Yeah, you know, a cup of coffee, a couple slaps in the face, <laughs> church history. I think... That's a day. I It is, actually. It's a great day. And then I got youth group tonight, so boom. There mm-hmm. you go. No, you know, I think I love it just because it's so different than what I do, right? It's just so different than like this or school or everything else that I do. Yeah. So it's yeah. just, you know, a little spice, a little spice of life. All right. So today we are going to be creeping our way into the 1800s. Yeah. So we're late 1700s. The, the Victorian era is a little bit begins kind of in the second decade of the 1800s the so we're coming up mm. into the the very what's before it was the edwardian i don't know yeah. what it is. is that what it is yeah i think so and so anyways yeah that's where we're at as far as time wise goes mm-hmm. uh we previously had a great awakening we did that was fun should do it again let's do it again yeah yeah, that's we're going to be talking about that, and, and I think we're going to what we're going to be talking about, getting into you know, more detail, is the impact that the evangelical resurgence has on society. Primarily, on we're going to focus mainly on on British and American society mm-hmm. um, today. But there's yeah, so there's there are movements begun. There are 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 new thoughts on certain issues. There's a renewed sense of, of purpose on the ground level um, that is, you know, directly, we can, we can see direct connection with the evangelical movement, you know, that came with the first and now the second Great Awakening. But before we get there, I have some fun, some fun little things. Let's do that. All right. 1801. The Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland merge to form the United Kingdom. And they've been best friends ever since, or something. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, 1803 to 1815, the Napoleonic Wars. So Napoleon mm-hmm. does his thing. Right. And that was that one time when the French were the best at war. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to the rest of history. But hey, uh, <laughs> Napoleon was a serious leader. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He had a chip on his shoulder. Thus... I mean, to to this day, we have the concept of the Napoleon complex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon, the founder of the Napoleon complex. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he went on a rampage until he was stopped uh, at the Battle of Waterloo, essentially. Um, eighteen oh four. Hold on. Wait, sorry. He does more than just rampage, though. Like oh, he he's yeah. very much a historian. Yeah. And he loves the preservation of history. Mm-hmm. And in some ways is, I, I think the father of modern archaeology is too much. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> but the instigator who brings about modern archaeology in a way that we benefit from greatly and whose rampages make for some incredible discoveries, mm. like, I don't know at what point we would have started digging around in the sandbox. Right. Had it not been for Napoleon and the work right. that he did. Um, we right. mentioned it sort of in passing last week that Rosetta Stone is mm-hmm. a portion of this, mm-hmm. um, which teaches the world how to read ancient languages that have been lost. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That Rosetta Stone is just... That ancient laws were written over and over again in multiple languages because they were more multicultural than many of us like to give them credit for. And that stone, just having the multiple languages saying the same thing, teaches, especially hieroglyphics, Mm -hmm. how to read those things. Uh, Some ancient Greek writings that were otherwise unknown. Mm -hmm. So it's, his product is more than a lot of death. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure, yeah. And he he shook up things politically. You know, after, after he's done, things kind of seem to go back to quasi normal but it doesn't last and essentially it's it sparks the beginning of 
you know, modern democracy coming to Europe, even though that's not what he was really doing. I mean, he might mm-hmm. have said that he, that's what he was doing. It's not what he was doing. Right. But but it actually kind of started the dominoes that, that brought in, you know, you know, modern democracy as we see it today in Europe, mainly in Europe. Yeah. Because it already existed in Britain. And for all that he's good at, what he's not good at mm. is real estate. <laughs> because in order to fund his war, mm. he makes the cell of Louisiana. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. Which will run from what is today Louisiana. Pronounced Louisiana. Oh, good to know. Yep. Uh, all the way up to the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. And from the Mississippi River into the Rocky Mountains, mm-hmm. right? A huge chunk of land mm-hmm. at less than pennies on the dollar today. Right. <laughs> um, that will become the heartland that feeds and fuels mm-hmm. America yeah. into the future. So probably should have kept it <laughs> or at least gotten more money for it. Yeah, maybe. But he was a man on a mission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, around this time, 1804, they figure the world population reached about a billion people. Really? For the first time. Wow. Yeah, 1804. Uh, the, that same year, the first steam locomotive begins operating, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the following decades, the 1810s and 20s, you have most of Latin America. Um, they achieved liberty. They, they, you know, through revolt and through different means, um, achieved liberty from Spain and Portugal. And, um... 1812 to 1815, we have the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. Um, America decided to invade Canada when Britain was busy fighting Napoleon, and uh, and they didn't succeed. So that's how I choose to remember the War of 1812. So apparently in the states they think they won, and up here we think we won. No, I, I don't. I don't think that's the difference. Okay, I think the difference is there's more weight. There's there's more in, in the same way. Uh, let's do it like this. In the same way that your education told you maybe that the American Revolution wasn't as big of a deal as it was made out to be. It was mm. a couple of small events that mm. eventually led to Britain being like, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think the Americans would teach the War of 1812 in a similar way. Right. Right? Um, I find it interesting. I was here in 2012, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it was interesting how patriotic Canadians are about the War of 1812. Um, when, it's, when it was a British invasion, not a Canadian invasion. Well, it was called Upper Upper and Lower Canada. It was yeah. We weren't we weren't yet right. We had a Canadian identity though, because they had it was part of it was part of what created a Canadian identity because the British garrisons were all undermanned because again the Britain Britain was busy fighting in Europe. Anyways, yeah, we burned I, the White House down. Just saying. Yeah, I, I'm I'm bear poking at this point. I know, so am I. I'm trying, um, but you're not letting me. You're not. You're not. You're not uh, taking it. So, so I, I think I think what we know of it is Americans have removed British rule. Mm-hmm. We're ruling themselves. We're pushing north to see how much of this new land is going to be America, mm-hmm. um, and met British resistance, who put on a counteroffensive, made their way into Washington D.C burned the White House, and then went back to Canada. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what else we got? Uh, just a couple last few things. 1818, Mary Shelley publishes Frankenstein, mm. one of the few books that I w- had to read in high school that I thoroughly enjoyed. That That is an incredible book. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. By the way, Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. Right. Folks, <laughs> if you get nothing out of the church history podcast, <laughs> know this: Frankenstein no. is the scientist. The monster is just Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not Frankenstein. <laughs> I know. Uh, okay, two more things. 1834, the Spanish Inquisition is finally over. It's been going on for 300 years at this point. <laughs> They're like, we're done. I, I we, so we, did did you find the answer to your question, boys? I, so podcast <laughs> listeners probably go, oh yeah, that right. really that's still going on. I wonder how much of society was doing the same thing, right? Like, right. has no one closed the door? We didn't close that door. We should close that door. Yeah, it's like 
oh, hey, everyone, like, we finished our Inquisition. Meanwhile, everyone's like, yeah, we were you know, just busy fighting Napoleon. Like, we didn't even, we don't care. And and it's waning <laughs> from there. Like, it's not at its yeah. climax no, point no, sustained no, for no. the whole time. It's waned, but officially closed. Just takes a while for them to get around to it. Yeah. Last yeah. thing, 1837, Charles Dickens uh, publishes Oliver Twist. Another great classic. Nice. That I read when I was young and, and really enjoyed, so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, the second Great Awakening. Yes. They woke up. They need to wake up again. Um, takes place kind of in the late 1700s, early 1800s, mm-hmm. primarily in the United States this time. The first one was kind of dual, Britain and the U.S. It's mostly in the States here. Right. And it's a, it's a response to a lot of the rationalism of the Enlightenment. Um, it was a, you know, a spiritual, experiential response to like just kind of the cold, dead deism that was most common especially amongst the elite, the American elite. Um, you know, most people were kind of, you know, like like the Thomas Jeffersons and Benjamin Franklins, like that we've spoken of before. There is a creator, but it is, you know, mm-hmm. it, there's there's nothing supernatural happening. There's, right. no, there's no, you know, there's no second birth. There's no gospel. Yeah, really. there's a huge secularization going on. Yeah, I think I, think I read less than... culture. Less than one in 10 Americans attended church on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Right, which is probably yeah. like what it is now, and the same is happening across the Atlantic. Oh, sure, yeah, cultural Europe, secularization yeah, for sure, especially in France, and and, and pursuing that is being pursued by uh, modernism, mm-hmm. right? That we are stepping into some of the modern industrial era. Um, it seems like these things always follow with, look what man has been able to do. Mm. Right? Look what man has been able to think of. Look what man has uh, been able to create. Mm. These kinds of things cause people to turn their eyes from God and to turn their eyes towards themselves. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this response in the Second Great Awakening, you mentioned with the Louisiana Purchase, or Lu- sorry, Louisiana, whatever. Louisiana. <laughs> Anyways, but with all of these people are now coming across from Europe to to the States, particularly because of all the upheaval and trouble and struggle that's going on in Europe. Massive amounts of people. And mm-hmm. they're just pushing pushing west, further and further west, into these lands that... <laughs> I love how Napoleon just, like, sold them all this land as though, like, nobody lived there. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's more like, you go take it from the natives because I'm too busy to, is right. really what it was. Right. But, but in any case... But take it without war, which arguably <laughs> might be cheaper... Right. <laughs> to buy it than to fight for it. Yeah, that's true. But Napoleon is so busy in yeah. Europe. Yeah. Yeah. What were the, like, he was going to be pulling troops anyway. Yeah. He, did, yeah. he couldn't defend that. No, no. So essentially, you know, we get into these lands of, you know, what is now Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Tennessee. And these, you know, these places is where the, the Great Awakening is strongest in these kind of mm-hmm. frontier communities. You know, and so it's it's itinerant preachers on horseback, you know, going out this, these like the camp meeting style thing out in, you know, out in nature, and you know, with 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 people who lived a really rough and hard life a lot of times, um, people who were not you know high up on the social ladder by any means, and uh, and it, but it really really took off, and in particularly amongst particularly amongst the um, the Methodists and the Baptists, they were they were probably the most successful with this kind of thing. I think the lack of hierarchy probably um, allowed some freedom to do, be outside of the box a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Whereas I think in, in other denominational contexts, they're like, well, we have to build a church building first, right? And a right. Baptist or Methodist preacher is like, no, you don't. Just, you know, I'll just stand on something and we'll do it that way. Yeah. Um, one, one interesting character from this time was Charles Finney. So Finney, uh, was a lawyer. He was born in Connecticut, raised in New York state, had a radical conversion experience, um, and, uh, was ordained a, a minister in the Presbyterian church in 1824. And he was a fire and brimstone kind of guy and, right. and really called into question the legitimacy of people's faith. 
mm-hmm. was kind of his like go-to move. Right. Right. Like you're not saved. None of you are saved. Like if you haven't had this overwhelming supernatural experience that he had where with like physical sensations and all these things, then, then you're not legit. Yeah. Um, so he kind of goes off the rails in some ways, but, but he's an important figure nonetheless, because he developed something that became known as the new measures. Um, so he, he does certain things in the church. Like they'd put this front pew right in front of the preacher that was called the anxious bench. And so people who really needed a good word would like sit down in front of the preacher and he'd just like yell at them and there is expected that they were supposed to have some kind of overwhelming response. It, it was, it's, he was kind of, while, while guys like Whitfield and Wesley preached emotionally and elicited mm-hmm. response, this, for just reading about Finney, it feels a little contrived. It kind of feels like drama a bit yeah. for me. Putting a formula to it is a criticism that's common for Finney. Mm-hmm. Um, he does he does have a bit of a, a bizarre theology that runs through his revivalism. Mm-hmm. And so this Second Great Awakening, one thing that really makes it different than the first great awakening. Um, I, I think, I think the first great awakening is recognized for what it is. Uh, the second great awakening often comes with the criticism that these people wanted that for their generation. Mm. And so they named it and then went out to create it. Right. We're right? going to have another one. Yeah. And and so here's, here's how, here's how we describe that. And, and this is going to be, bizarre to the point of offensive for some listeners. I, I get that. Mm. Um, there's a time in a church where people prayerfully repent. They acknowledge their sin. They individually and corporately turn from that sin before God. And there is new life breathed into that church that's revival, mm-hmm. right? There are also instances where people say, hey, on April the 6th, just randomly, on wait, now that I say that randomly, it happens to be my daughter's birthday. Okay. On, <laughs> on April the 6th at 7 o'clock, we're going to have a revival service, right? And that's when the Holy Spirit's going to move. You don't show up at 530, he won't be there yet. It's six. That's the revival service. Or, or usually, like, I grew up in these week-long revival right, services. Right. And if you can put it in a tent, it's even better. Yeah. Right? And so... Because then the Holy Spirit doesn't, like the t- doesn't yeah. rise too far. It's the you tabernacle. Keep them trapped effect. closer to the ground. Tabernacle effect. <laughs> um, and, and that's... Good things have happened. Mm. I, made, oh, yeah. I made my profession of faith at a revival service. Mm. Not to disparage those things. William Blackaby was pastor. Okay. Uh, the, the difference is, one is planned repentance, movement of the Holy Spirit, turning from our sins. The other is these things have taken place inside of us, right? There is a possibility... That a church could say, hey, we and our community have sin that we need to turn away from and commit. We're bringing this person in to walk us through that process mm. next week. Mm. I'm I'm here for that. Yeah, that's cool. Right? Uh, but sometimes what it ends up being is, that was good, let's do it again next year, and let's just make it an annual thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And at that point, we're calling special worship outside of our normal Sundays, revival, when that's not exactly what revival is. Yeah. And that's where Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening find their hottest criticism. Along with this come some things theologically that are worth being critical of. Yeah, oh, for sure. But the main criticism is that whereas the first was this very... You don't want to say natural or organic, it's supernatural. Mm. But this movement of the Holy Spirit that brings about this mass repentance and, and change uh, versus a group who says, 
that was really great for them. We want that for us. We're going to name it and then go do it mm. uh, kind of a thing. Right. And that's just to say the, the two aren't the same. Yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah. I definitely, as I was reading up on it, got, got that sense. And not to say that, you know, that the example of Finney is... You know, everyone was doing that, right. but a lot of people were doing that. Right. And a lot of people are going to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people still do that. Um, yeah, which Finney is interesting because, so one, one of the things, I mean, theologically, it's um, theologically schizophrenic almost, Finney. There's stuff, there's like bits and pieces that you would expect from here and not there. Um, just strange to me, like uh, believed in perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, a believer can and should live totally free from sin. Right. Um, that that is possible. That that should be the expectation. Um, and, and and he's the kind of guy to say, you know, he, he's going to question your salvation, right? Like you got to give your life to the Lord again if you haven't, if you know, if you've had any sin in your life, right? Um, also, post millennial in a strange way. So again, what he saw was if we can get enough revivals going and enough hearts can be changed, we're gonna we can recreate society, right? Through you know this strict kind of moral code that he was also in in support of. Um, now some of the things, some of these things are, were good things. Like he was an early champion for the abolition of slavery, mm-hmm. right? But before it was cool, right? Um, but uh, but yes, Finney Finney's Finney's an interesting, interesting character. <clears throat> we can leave it at that for now. Sure. Um, yeah. So let's talk about abolitionism a little bit. Um, I got some things to talk about. We'll talk about in the United Kingdom first, because um, there's a couple of really cool characters involved, mm-hmm. um, believers in in the abolition in the United Kingdom, and chronologically it. It was first, although some of the states are actually not that far behind the UK at all. Um, it's just, it gets complicated as you cross the, was it the Mason-Dixie line? Anyways. Mason-Dixon, yeah. Mason-Dixon, sorry. So the abolition movement in the United K- Kingdom had already kind of started, it started with John John Wesley was, was a proponent for um, abolishing slavery. And he published in 17... 17- 76, I think, um, a book or a published a paper essentially on that very subject. And, um, and people were, people were quite taken with it and it got, got people thinking. Um, the, the first real character though, that not real, but the first important character that some people will hopefully know the name already is William Wilberforce. Mm -hmm. William Wilberforce is, Pretty awesome. Um, he was born in 1759 to a wealthy merchant family. So think upper middle class or lower upper class, whatever you want to call it. Um, raised in an Ang- Anglican home at a young age, um, was really taken with evangelical Christianity. He was exposed to people like George Whitfield. Um, but it was just kind of through certain family members that were part of that movement. And, and you know, he was just a kid at this point. Mm-hmm. As a young man, he, you know, he actually inherits a huge amount of money. And so he's like young and loaded and, you know, going to school, living a hedonistic lifestyle, right? Gambling, cards, drinking. That was his, you know, that's what he was up to. Um, But he decided, he was encouraged to actually get into politics. He was elected an MP, a member of parliament, at the age of 21. Wow. Which is pretty young. Yeah. Yeah, 21 years old. And and that age, it would be hard to be elected as president of the student body at a university right yeah i know you'd be people would be like yeah i want you to wait till your senior year yeah and like yeah. he he came from a respectable family to a degree but he wasn't noble mm-hmm. right so like yeah so obviously there's something about him he you know that is particularly noticeable that he's got this something ca- that commands attention capacity of leadership yeah. yeah sure what i like about him politically is that he was not a strict party man but would vote on bills various bills according to his conscience which i just what i just wish every politician would do that um just to, you know may, well maybe actually maybe they need to have a conscience first i don't oh. know <laughs> oh. Sing. no i i yeah anyways 
But anyways, but I like that about him. So he made he kind of he had friends and enemies on both sides of the room, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Um, or literally on both sides of the room. Because, yeah, he, he just couldn't be pigeonholed into one box. Um, and so while on an extended vacation, he takes this renewed interest in Christianity through some friendships. He starts reading the Bible every morning, waking up and reading the Bible. And it's then that he experiences you know, his, his conversion. And at first he isn't sure if he should remain in politics. And so he asks around, and he actually asks a good friend of his named John Newton. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about John, John Newton? Because he, he's awesome. So John Newton is best known for authoring a song, mm-hmm. Amazing Grace. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, the movie, on The Life of William Wilberforce, is um, called Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. Right, came out in two thousand six. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it, it really is great. If you haven't seen it, you should go see it. If you mm-hmm. have, watch it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also has this sort of like, if I'm not mistaken, merchant family background. I think so. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he ends up running with a, a group of friends. Um, there's a a book that is out by Michael Haken, who is. Uh, very much an esteemed Christian historian. This is his focus period. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own personal studies lately have been locked in this period as well, mm. uh, not disconnected. Um, and and he's a, a, a part of this group of friends that are that include uh, Wilberforce, uh, John Newton, Andrew Fuller, mm. who's a Baptist minister uh, at the time. John Ryland Sr., John Ryland Jr., who's going to come along. Mm. Junior comes after senior. Right. <laughs> um, Thomas Stevens. Yeah. Uh, later, William Carey. Like, there's just mm. a ton of name drops that go on in this. And the beauty of it all is is they just have this, this web of not only networking. I, 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 think, mm. I think one thing that we... Would want to do in our modern society is call it networking. Like all, they're all Facebook friends or connected on LinkedIn or whatever, right? That's that's not the case. These these people are intimate in their friendships and mm. able to speak into each other's lives. They're they're bouncing ideas off of one another mm. uh, in a in a really a really special way mm. that is developing their theologies. That's a huge part of the conversation. Yeah. What do you believe in this theologically? What does God demand of us in this? Scriptural interpretation, the practice of the church, mm. ecclesiology. Some of these guys um, are Baptist. Some of them are Anglican, right? The Anglican church at this time is going through a bit of an upheaval. It's splitting between the high Anglican church, which is like, hey, what if we were Anglican but really Catholic? Um <laughs> What if we undid the Reformation <laughs> right. in, in certain areas? Yeah, yeah, in certain areas. In certain areas like things that were foundationally really important, like communion, mm-hmm. um, versus an evangelical Anglicanism that's going to grow. Mm. Uh, so they're, they're bouncing this sort of ecclesiology, the practice of the church, off of each other, uh, and, and caring for each other personally, mm. right? Mm-hmm. They're each other's family, right? Like in some of the letters they write back and forth, there'll be notions like, hey, I was talking to your brother and he let me know that your dad had passed away, mm. right? How are you doing, right? right? So there's this, hmm. there's this awesome web of, of these names that aren't just, uh, they're not just contemporaries and they're not just in cooperation theologically or, or for a movement. Mm. Um, but they, they genuinely love each other mm. and care for each other. Yeah. And all of them apparently are huge fans of Jonathan Edwards. Okay. Well, there and, you go. <laughs> and his influence on them. Cause we, we talked about how Edwards would bring people mm. into his home mm-hmm. um, and how he finds the works of uh, David, Brainerd. Okay, yeah. Uh, who had stayed with him, eventually dies in his home mm. uh, as Edwards is taking 
care of him or his family is taking care of David Brainerd and uh, publishes that. And these guys are just sharing it back and forth like crazy. Mm. Um, I, I think it's Ryland that says uh, in a funeral address, um, if I were if I were given the opportunity um, to have anything known outside of uh, the scripture itself, mm. it would be Jonathan Edwards' collection of the writings of hmm. uh, David Brainerd. And so these guys have these, these joint interests, joint work, mm. and heart connections. Um, and, and if you have, you should get, I'll let you borrow mine. One day, one day we're both going to have opportunity to read because we want to, right. and not because it's assigned. <laughs> uh, but it's just brilliant reading Iron Sharpens Iron and just mm. seeing how these names are just mm. constantly interwoven into the fabric mm. of the friendships that these guys have. Hmm. Um, and right there in the middle of it all is John Newton. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, John Newton, John Newton is going to be a big part of abolishing, or a big proponent of abolishing slavery, which is interesting because he had a career in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. Um, He was worked in the slave trade and actually became a slave ship captain for a while. He actually got captured by an African woman and was a slave to an African princess in Sierra Leone for for a while until he was rescued and went back to being a slave ship captain. Yeah, which is something that I I hadn't heard before, but is actually really interesting. Yeah. it's yeah t- the concept of slavery mm. in in our culture is so repulsive and and removed from us that it's hard to imagine it as a way of life right mm. and i i think as we work to sanctify work with the spirit in our own sanctification and the reforming of our own culture there will be things that we do now that we look back on mm. And go. What was I thinking? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is that. This is a, a dawning moment for Anglo societies, where they have now, for a couple hundred years, made use of African slavery, mm-hmm. um, and they're starting to ask the question: Should we do that? Mm-hmm. Right. But here you have, like, in, the, in that last story, you just have John Newton participating on both sides of it because it's just a way of life. Yeah. And it has been for millennia. Yeah. Right? I mean, the Old Testament talks about slavery and, and taking slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, this is really a moment that's going to change all of humanity, mm-hmm. this sort of dawning moment mm-hmm. of this anti-slavery. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a, it's a new thing. To mm-hmm. abolish slavery is a new thing. It's not that something got started and now they need to put an end to it. It's some, this thing that has been part of human society for as long as there have been human societies needs to end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And so, yeah, so anyway, so William Wilberforce is the guy who is the MP, and John Newton, who is now who is converted and becomes a minister and is, you know, involved in ministry and all sorts of things, but also pushing for, for the abolition of slavery is kind of encouraging William in his quest to do this. And, you know, so William Wilberforce, now a committed, born-again believer, and, uh, and yeah, and, and politically he's, he's upsetting people on both sides of the spectrum. Because he's conservative on certain issues, but he's also pushing for the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. So nobody likes him. Uh, he's like, no, morality is important, and also we shouldn't have slaves. And so nobody, nobody's a big fan of him. Morality is important, <laughs> and that includes and that includes the exactly, of yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So he like he pushed for you know continuing uh, observance of the Sabbath, and you know pushing for for certain more conservative things. But yeah, anyways, um, and so he starts building um this like social justice movement really it's mm-hmm. kind of the beginning of this the social justice movement and he's really so he's pushing this he's he's bringing people in people who have experiences you know former slaves former slave ship captains and 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 building this because to a lot of people particularly in in England itself it's not like you had lots of slaves in the farms on English soil 
it's primarily in the colonies that you were going to see slavery, right? So it was this thing that they did that was good economically, but mm-hmm. your average person didn't really have any sense of what that looked like. Sure. Right? And so part of it was just educating people of like, hey, this is what it's like to, you know, work on a sugar cane plantation in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. It's not great, right? And so they're educating people. They're, they're pushing bills. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of a long... It, there's kind of a long, slow victory by small increments, right? So they'll, they'll end, you know, okay, no, no more taking slaves. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, now no more, no more selling them. Okay, now you, you, can't, you can't have them on, on English soil, but you can still have them in the colonies. Okay, now certain colonies can and certain colonies can't. So it's this, it's this slow, progressive thing, but eventually, uh, eventually it succeeds, you know, after decades of work. I want to, I want to draw a modern analogy, to this um because what's happening is like you said people aren't witnessing this Mm -hmm. in england but they're being asked to speak to it and to bring it to its end Mm. most of them aren't participating in it directly yeah but all of them are benefiting from it on the fringe Mm. and and the ask is Aside from from the right human rights side of things, mm. there is an ask of the people there to say, "Are you willing to make your life a, more expensive and thus more difficult for the sake of these people over there mm. that you're hearing are struggling?" Mm. Right. And in some cases, asking people to close their businesses because that's what they do for a living, right? Mm -hmm. So this has a a ripple effect across the general public in the same way that very specific things that we have in our society, um, diamonds, chocolate, Mm. coffee, clothing, and tech products, Mm. I think are among the chief concerns where they are being made or mined in a way that is um unethical very unethical oftentimes through slave labor yeah um and and consumed in vast quantities by us Mm -hmm. without asking questions yeah right but there are movements to bring fair trade Mm -hmm. uh to bring an end to sweatshops, yep, those kinds of things, child to, labor, right? But those things are really expensive. They are, and we hear about the struggles, but we don't see them, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I think there's a really interesting modern day equivalency. I, I there's a part of me that wants to stop short of equivalency, but no, it, it is. It's the same thing. Um, between the ask that they're being asked versus the decisions that we're willing to make. Mm-hmm. And and I think we as a people need to be aware of how these issues come about, right? There are certain companies that we know instantly, Nestle, who are notoriously mm-hmm. convicted of these things and just pay it off, right? Yep. Nike. Yep. And and in it's I, I just want to bring us the challenge mm-hmm. as we lift these guys up and herald them for their bravery mm-hmm. and what they were able to do and what they took on and what the society took on mm-hmm. for the sake of others. Um yeah, we should consider that as well. Mm-hmm. Because we have similar opportunities available to us. Mm-hmm. Um that's that's my soapbox. Yeah, no, I I think that's good. And I, th- I think there's, you know, there's there's easy ways, like little things that we can do as individuals. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everyone can, can become that champion. I think certain people are called to that. But like, mm-hmm. you know, Candace and I, not to kind of toot our own horn, but just to kind of maybe inspire people like this year, like don't buy, we didn't buy any new clothes. Like right. maybe like socks and underwear if you, if you absolutely need it. Right. But like, but apart from that, like if you need something, we get it secondhand. Mm-hmm. Um and and that's good better for the environment as well 
better for the yeah. environment and you're not you know you're not getting stuff from sweatshops or whatever so just there's little things you can do that aren't all that difficult yeah and, and in fact we're i mean we're saving money if we're not going and buying brand new gap clothes or whatever anyway. I, I would say look into ijm the oh, International yeah. Justice Mission. Yeah, they're great. They have a Canadian office mm-hmm. in London, Ontario, mm-hmm. um, and offices in the states. They're they're fantastic because they go into places around the world where slave labor is taking place, mm-hmm. um, and like special ops forces, they liberate these people and then bring their uh, captors before courts Mm -hmm. in many of these countries Mm -hmm. where this is taking place the court is easily paid off sure um and and the slave owners have the means to do that sure but ijm is basically a group of like navy seals slash lawyers (laughs) that's the way i think of them right like yeah they are they are the special ops of foreign missions right and they physically deliver these people Mm mm-hmm they bring people to court, and if the courts express corruption, they bring the courts to court, right? <laughs> and they don't stop until they win. Right. IJM is probably one of, mm-hmm. if not the most inspiring missions mm-hmm. agencies yeah. uh, out there. Just mm-hmm. everything they do could be a movie. Like, yeah. you, you want a Netflix series? Yeah. Yeah. I'd watch that. And, and, and as they free these people, mm-hmm. they speak to them about... The bondage of sin, mm. the freedom of Christ. Yeah. Right. It's not purely social justice. It's mm. absolute justice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. They're they're a good place. If you're looking for somewhere to throw some money at, that's a it's a good place to go. Um yeah, so so again, abolition of slavery is slowly achieved. Um, mm-hmm. In the British Empire, and the same can be the same can be said in in the United States. It it takes a little longer for certain areas, but certain areas, Vermont uh, abolishes slavery in 1777. Mm. Like that's early, right? right? That's like like literally as soon as the revolution's done, they're like, okay, no more slaves. Now, they're by nature of the types of agricultural work that were happening in different areas, it was people need to understand like it was a lot easier for the North to abolish slavery from an economic standpoint than the South, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a reason why it's not that because people who lived in the North were so much, so much more noble and enlightened, they had a lot less to lose by taking yeah. that step. Right? In fact, the, the introduction of unionized work in the North mm. had to do with child labor and laborers being used in slave-like conditions, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so th- there's still, right, because you still get, like, you get workarounds, right, indentured servitude. You owe me tons of money, so you're going to work for me until that debt's paid off, but it's never going to get paid right. off. But the compounding interest on that is yeah. more than you're making, so. Yeah, and that goes on today in other parts of the world. That's why they say there's more slaves now mm-hmm. than ever before, right. because this indentured servitude thing, you know, in places where they don't have good labor laws, um, you have you have sometimes a significant percentage of the population that that's how they live their lives. Yeah. So basically, the way that works is to say, you owe me. We'll just go with easy numbers. You owe me a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. You have to work for me until your hundred bucks is paid off. Mm-hmm. I'll pay you fifty dollars a day. Mm. I'll give you place to sleep and food because you're not allowed to leave. Mm. That costs a hundred dollars a day. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. and so you work your two days. Ah, but now you're in debt more than you were to begin with because cost mm-hmm. of food and housing. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it just never gets paid out. Yeah, yeah. So, so the abolition of slavery is one of the big things that happens. And and while you know you could tie it to some degree with the, the advance of democracy, and there is that, and the advance of kind of modern ideals, sure. I think the resurgence of evangelical Christianity has a big part in the abolition of slavery. And because some of the most outspoken people um, against slavery are on both sides of the Atlantic are going to be believers. As it, as it should be. As it should be, yeah. Right? And, and this, is, this is a really unfortunate thing mm. that we find. Um, some people argue social justice— 
misses the gospel, mm. and so we stay away from it. Mm. True. There are a lot of people that do social justice in the name of Jesus mm-hmm. that is not in the name of Jesus. Right. Right? They're not pursuing the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, much later on, we're going to have liberation theology, um, and it is it is going to equate social injustice and sin mm. in a way as to say what people need is just freedom here on earth. Yeah. Living in inequality. Yeah, political right? and economic freedom. Yeah. Right. Political, economic equity, this is this is the goal of Christ. It's not. Mm-hmm. The goal of Christ is to be one with him mm-hmm. and to live in communion as the church mm-hmm. under his righteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also includes those expressions here on earth. Yeah. Right? And it is an unfortunately rare thing to find groups that get that, mm-hmm. that understand that justice as a whole mm. includes the gospel mm-hmm. and the here and now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A hope for freedom from sin mm-hmm. and life in Christ that is expressed by mm-hmm. whatever freedom we're able to afford here. Yeah, I, and and it it breaks my heart how rare that is, mm-hmm. because people generally want to say it's about the gospel, it's about salvation. Who cares if we are dealing with hunger and poverty and slavery and all of these kinds of things? As long as they're saved, that's what that's what the Bible cares about. Or to say Jesus never cared about repentance from sin; he only cared about equity of living. And if right. it's not if it's not here and now equity, then it's it's not it's not the church. And yeah. And and I don't see why it's so difficult for us to practice the two in conjunction. Isaiah chapter one is all about this. Right? The the Jews are doing it even then. There's all kinds of statements about look, you're doing all of the feasts, you're doing all of the things that I've asked you to do, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look at the look at the widow. Look at the fatherless. Mm. Uh, there's so much blood on your hands. All the injustice that you're doing. Yeah. Don't you understand that I'm not here to receive your offerings of freedom and deliverance while you have people enslaved. Right. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense. And yeah. then later, Jesus is going to tell parables along these same lines, mm-hmm. right? About people who are forgiven but refuse to forgive. Uh, James tells us true religion. Mm. True, true religion is, at first, in, in the opening chapters, a heart that is a faith that is active and not dead, Yep, and that that activity in later chapters mm. includes meeting the needs mm-hmm. of widows and orphans, those yeah. people who in have physical In an impartial way as well, right? because James gets into that, that as well, right? Yeah, no, you're totally right. I was looking, for, looking up a quote that I saw this morning. Um, it said something along the lines of, if if you try to put social justice first and the gospel second, you're going to lose the gospel and you're not even going to accomplish social justice. Mm-hmm. It's not true social justice because what is truly just is what God says is just. Right. Right. So you can you're going to lose lose the plot. Um, and we we've seen that. Not to say that there are like there haven't been secular social justice movements that have done good things. I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to pretend like that's not true. But we also can see how often they end up missing the plot. It's good, but it's incomplete. Yeah. So here's here's my take on it that no one will ever be able to Google or ever care about. <laughs> I'm not a soundbite kind of writer, but this is my take on it. Social justice is a modifier. Social at the beginning of justice is a modifier to say what kind of justice, mm. which means it's not complete. It's a specific kind of justice. Right. The church needs to quit worrying about social justice mm. and worry about justice, mm. the fullness of justice, mm-hmm. which will include all of the varying modifiers, spiritual mm. justice, mm-hmm. social justice, mm-hmm. whatever other right modifiers belong under the umbrella of justice, mm. right? So when someone says the church shouldn't be worried about social justice— Yes and no. 
Mm-hmm. The church should be worried about justice. Mm-hmm. But yes, that includes at yeah. the social level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think taking something seriously is not necessarily the same as being preoccupied with it, like overly preoccupied. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's, that's kind of, that's, that's the issue. You're right. You kind of get within the church, you kind of get two two extremes. You get the people that, that kind of ignore it and say, no, 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 no. We just, we just, all we got to do is just preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And we don't do anything else. Um, or those groups that have abandoned the gospel and are just like community charity places. Right. Right. You know what? We showed up with opinions today. We did. We did. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought you and I having opinions, Tim? <laughs> yeah. Maybe they need some temperance. Do you want to count oh, that a segue? That's a good one. Yeah. We won't go too, too long into this because we're, we're, we're getting along in our episode here. But uh, one of the other, one of the other movements that kind of came from the evangelical resurgence was the temperance movement. And as early as, you know, the mid 1700s, certain uh, native leaders began pushing against the use of alcohol as a trade item to First Nations people in America. Um, they were realizing how, especially for those who hadn't had a lot of exposure to it, how destructive alcohol can be, especially when it's cheap and mm-hmm. prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um John Wesley was an early advocate of avoiding alcohol. Now, in the early 1800s, in the States, the consumption of alcohol was still considered like a necessary part of your diet, right? For a variety of like reasons, like clean water was hard to come by, right? Milk or other things like that weren't always available. Coffee and teas were expensive. So like... To some degree, like depending on where you lived, it would have been hard not to drink mm-hmm. at all. Um, and in and, and socially too, it was you know considered impolite to turn down a drink, right? Um, so the the problem is that when you start getting these growing markets, you have kind of the industrial revolution kicking up, and now it's v- very prevalent, very cheap. And especially in, in a lot of the cities, it becomes very destructive and is like ruining families, ruining, you know, ruining communities. Um, and so the concern was, you know, about overindulgence. So um, early, early on, the temperance movement didn't call for no alcohol consumption. Temperance just like means like moderate. Slow it down. Yeah, just slow it down there, bro. Right. Um, so moderate consumption. Um, and, and this movement started to pick up steam and it, and it picked up steam because there was a real problem. There was a real societal mm-hmm. problem. Right. Um, and so it, it, it kind of started there, there became to be the kind of this national nationwide movement in the United States in like the 1820s and, and kind of driven by a lot of, um, evangelical middle-class average everyday people, um, and, and essentially, they, they really focused on, like, against hard spirits. It was kind of what they were really cramping down on. They didn't push too hard against beer and wine. At this point, it, it does become, eventually it becomes uh, teetotalism, um, which I learned uh, just came from the capital T's that they would, um, they would mark next to their name. They would, like, sign it next to their name to indicate that they, didn't, they wouldn't drink. Apparently that's what okay. that's what that comes from. I don't know. All right. Um, that was yeah. There's kind of like this. It was kind of like you know how they had like the 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 purity ring thing. Mm-hmm. It's gonna you sign on, mm-hmm. and you're, it's like a symbolic thing. That's what they would do for for people with alcohol, and so that became really popular, and uh, and 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 that's and that's kind of carried over for generations. As you have in certain Christian groups, um, the expectation is complete abstinence from from all alcohol. Um, that's probably, we're probably not there. Like we're probably, I'd say like, I think in the evangelical church, we've kind of moved, took it a step back from the teetotalism to temperance as kind of the norm. It depends on where you're from. Sure. Yeah, I guess. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll say this, right? Like there's a, a lot of British influence here. We've mm-hmm. talked about that before. Yeah. A lot of European influence, mm-hmm. um, pure abstinence from alcohol is, a bit rare here, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, like my dad, my dad, my dad never drank. I think he might have tried. He, oh, he's you know what? I don't want to. 
I think he might have tried it once, but he was it was not for him, and he was raised in a house that didn't. Yeah, so that's not to say that's not to say that individuals don't make their decisions. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, as taught from the pulpit, right? As a, a cultural expectation within the church, mm-hmm. it's pretty rare. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it, it's more it's more temperance, mm-hmm. drunkenness is the problem, right. and uh, how a person. Uh, if if a person takes it upon themselves to say, you know what, absolute abstinence mm-hmm. is is where I'm going to take that, people are like, good on you, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, I I don't think the same is true in the South. Okay. So, yeah, you could speak to that obviously more than I can. So in this in the states, like you mentioned, this expansion bringing people into Kentucky, mm. right? I mean, this is what Kentucky is known for to this day. Bourbon, right? Um, and so these, these things are being produced up in the mountains, in the hills by individuals doing their own moonshine thing, also being mass produced. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, when they, when they start getting out of hand and temperance is called for, we're, we're going to see later on, hundreds of years later, this temperance growing to the degree that it's going to be bring about legal uh consequences for alcohol oh yeah right yeah when the united states is going to go through an absolute abolition Mm -hmm. uh not abolition uh abstinence of of, from alcohol Mm -hmm. and that's going to be enforced where i'm from those laws many of those laws still exist yeah because there's dry counties still right states right so so where I live, we still have dry counties. I grew up in a dry county. Hmm. Um, wow. Even even the counties that aren't dry in Arkansas, unless things have changed in the last, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but 15 years. Since you lived there? Since I left. Wow. I know. You were but a babe. I was. Well, I was more than that. I was a teenager with a bad attitude. <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> I... You still like they would be closed on Sundays, right? Right. So that's like the first sort of creeping out of that is like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, but you can't, can't buy on it on the Lord's Day, right? Right. Right. Um, so those kinds of those kinds of things still exist to this day, hmm. and I bet I bet we have listeners in Arkansas that are like, I can't believe this conversation is even being had, right? Yeah, like this enough. conversation is actually being had. Two Baptist pastors that aren't going to jump out and say, no, you can't. Um, you you all alcohol is is a problem i remember conversations when i was a kid hmm. um i don't know if they were tongue in cheek or if they were being serious okay um but conversations about like what about things like nyquil which are pretty high oh, yeah, in alcohol sure, content sure as a uh as a cough syrup, a cough syrup right yeah. um because because it was a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Alcohol is just something you didn't you didn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but just doing a, a quick Google search, mm-hmm. there are distilleries in Kentucky right now that started in this period. Wow! Right? So it's it's a it's a part of that culture um, hmm. that just sort of stuck with it. Yeah. So I, I did a quick search as well. There are actually some communities in Canada that are dry still. Really? Yeah, Alberta, um, some small places in like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Yeah, there's one place in Manitoba. I can't recall the name of it now. I think it's Manitoba. Anyways, it's one of the prairie provinces, but they're like, uh, it's like a Mennonite county. And they're, okay. they're a dry county still. Because I remember people talking about, talking about, telling stories but when they used to travel play travel hockey and go out west that there was like a thing that you couldn't couldn't drink there because um, mm-hmm. hockey players are notorious for party being party animals yeah and so they didn't like having to go there i guess but anyways yeah no when it comes to the alcohol it's a matter of, uh consumption of alcohol as far as like in in moderation it's a matter of conscience i think uh scripture literally actually says that um in in, in reference to alcohol actually so um, there's yeah. no way around. There's no way around saying it's a matter. It's a matter of conscience. But if people feel like you know abstinence, you know total abstinence from it is the best route, the wisest route, um, I, I certainly wouldn't argue with them. 
Yeah, it, it's it's. I think it's more complicated than that in areas where it's the expectation mm. to stay away from mm-hmm. as divine order. Mm. Uh, and, and that complication comes in more towards the Pauline conversations of causing a brother to stumble. Right. Right. So for for a pastor in the South, uh, and I've talked about this with a number of pastors in the South and mm. had to work through this myself, to come out and teach your people, hey, you know what, this really is a matter of conscience, is sound biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yet, is it the hill to die on? Right. Because it might be the hill you die on. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, that that it has become so much the cultural expectation that this is what Christians do mm. that um, you could end up losing your congregation hmm. over having the discussion, even hmm. right, or yeah. or at least individuals within your congregation, mm-hmm. right. And so I would say a Southern pastor. And I'm just going to use that demographic because that's sure. what I know best. Sure. Uh, is really in a bit of a quandary mm. over what is better to say, well, this is actually the better interpretation of the situation versus starting a fire that you might not be able to put out. Right. And it's not only within the church, it also uh, exists outside the church where mm. community looking in who aren't believers would just be like, well, that's hypocrisy. Right. <laughs> Why? Because for generations now, since mm. the temperance movement, right? So not only generations, but for centuries now, mm-hmm. they've been taught that this is wrong, mm-hmm. right? Biblically wrong, and Christians don't do it mm-hmm. at all, Yeah. right? And so now everything that you say is tainted, right? Is it a right thing? I wouldn't say yes. Um, how do you steer that ship straight? Yeah, it's tough. I pastor in Canada, and it's not <laughs> my problem. Uh, you don't have that issue here. You have other issues. Sure. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but but it's it's really a complex thing. And yeah. and like you said, it starts off with the best of intentions, right? Mm-hmm. This is being abused. It's an ill on society. Yep. It's an ill within the family. It needs to be addressed. It's rightly addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh but it got out of hand and yeah. and became legalism. It, 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 that's what I was gonna say. It, it becomes a legalism, and here we are, you know, two hundred and twenty-five years later, trying to figure out drinking well to that communion. What to do? <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm fine. I'm, I'm no, <laughs> I mean, you're the one that told me that Welch's began as a company. Yeah, because yeah, churches. Needed a non-alcoholic option yeah. for communion. Yeah, so it's the non-alcoholic grape juice. Welch's was like, yeah, they they were the main provider for, for like in in most like Baptist and Methodist churches because those were the ones that were were dry for the most part. Yeah, interestingly yeah. enough, as a rule, in uh, the former Soviet bloc, mm. Baptists uh, are teetotalers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for communion. Interesting, right? Which is the opposite. It's the opposite of what we of, do here. Of many of <laughs> of what's going on in the Americas, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, so, so trying to find a way to ask mm. with it, because I'm I'm there not just visiting, right? I'm I'm there as a, a guest lecturer for a, a seminary course, mm-hmm. uh, and so. I don't want to discredit myself in the eyes of the president of the seminary sure. or my host uh, and professors and things like that. Um, I, I, I find a way to just sort of ask the question or just to note that it's it's flipped. Mm. Say, can we just acknowledge the irony of it all? Mm-hmm. Um, and and they were like, well, but it's it's communion, so the Holy Spirit is present. And the alcohol has no effect. It's like, I mean, it all. You're also using like a quarter of a teaspoon. Yeah, you're having a thimbleful. Like right. it's not going to get you drunk. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's not how it works. <laughs> but interestingly enough, the tolerance movement is a part of that. Right. Their reality as well. Interesting. Um, yeah. But whereas we develop Welch's, they're like, nah, you're good. Just communion. Yeah. 
It's, we're talking about a very small amount of wine. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's essentially all I got for today. Yep. Just kind of the the social movements that came out of evangelicalism. We're going to talk about missionaries next week. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the most inspiring mm. people. Yeah. Someone's crying next week. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's probably going to be me. Well, cause I it, wouldn't doubt it. Because if it's you... <laughs> Because it's either going to be me or if it's you, I'm going to sympathy cry because I just, I do that. Yeah. When you were talking the, the other, a couple episodes back about how you're the only one who cries in your sermon, I, I do the sympathy. I can't not. So like, just know you're never crying alone, Tim. <laughs> hope that's, hope you, hope you find that comforting. I feel like we need some music, some, <laughs> some Sarah McLaughlin never... something in the background right there. In the arms of the angel. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Up until that point, thanks for listening. <laughs> this podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and is produced by Alex Walker. Yes, it is. Take care, everybody. See ya.